0: Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Sloth's Languid Lack of Passion by Graham Tomlin is the most perplexing of the seven deadly sins, and the one that is hardest to define. Most people would probably think first of laziness when they think of sloth. On the other hand, sloth is often related to the older Latin idea of axody, which is sometimes translated to spiritual weariness or despair. But these two definitions indicate the problem we have with sloth. If it is just sheer laziness, it might be considered as a slight moral failing, but most of us would hardly classify a little idleness as one of the great threats to human life. Sleeping in just a little longer in the morning hardly promises to bring Western civilization to its knees. On the other hand, if it is defined as despair, that sounds very close to depression, and we know that depression is usually an illness that afflicts some people without their choosing. It is not a freely chosen pattern of life, an act of disobedience to God or anyone else. By this understanding, sloth hardly counts as a sin either. Sloth is either too trivial to worry about or too involuntary to blame. Clinical depression is an illness that can hit people for no apparent reason and for no fault of their own. The symptoms are similar, but it is important to distinguish depression from sloth. Depression can be caused by genetics, a traumatic event, or the misuse of drugs. Sloth is not depression. It is another form of despair that starts with small things, a deliberate chosen shrug of the shoulders, a turning away from someone in need, a switching off of something in the heart. Sometimes it can be caused by disillusionment with life, but it sets in a pattern of allowing yourself to drift towards a languid, couldn't be bothered approach that in time becomes a habit of life. Once sloth or spiritual weariness gets hold of you, it's hard to shake it off and it can lead to disaster. Sloth is essentially a giving up on life. It leads to finding no pleasure in it, a dull steady torpor that expects nothing new, nothing exciting, nothing worth getting out of bed for. Dorothy Sayers wrote of Sloth, It is not merely idleness of mind and laziness of body. It is that whole poisoning of the will which, beginning with indifference and an attitude of I couldn't care less, extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair. Our culture is the most overstimulated in history. Only a generation or two ago, children had to make do with a football, a doll, a game, or two, and a few friends. Then black and white computer ping pong was born, closely followed by space invaders, and we all thought the ultimate in entertainment had arrived. We were never to be bored again. Those games looked like the Stone Age now, yet with the arrival of unlimited information at the click of a mouse, games with graphics enabling you to fly the world, fight the Second World War, and create your own civilization, have we eradicated sloth or wardom? If anything, we have increased it. Peter Kreeft comments, How do we explain the irony that the very society which for the first time has conquered nature by technology and turn the world into a giant fun and games factory, a rich kid's playroom, the very society which has the least reason to be bored is the most bored. The problem is that however intricate the technology, however scintillating the entertainment, it soon gets superseded by something else. Hence, it's hardly surprising when we turn our noses up at the triumphs of yesterday as we have something better today and when we even get disillusioned with today's wonders, knowing they will soon be consigned to history as well. But to dig a little deeper into the origins of sloth, Thomas Aquinas described it as sadness and abhorrence or boredom regarding a spiritual and divine good. He refers to what happens when, through numerous small choices and turning points, a person becomes incapable of being stimulated by anything good or beautiful or wise. Or worse, when goodness, beauty or wisdom evoke a response of disgust or a cynical smirk. When we lose the passion for life, goodness, laughter and joy, then it might be a sign that sloth has fixed its grip upon us. It happens when there is nothing left outside ourselves to really believe in. Looking at the other sins, we might be forgiven for thinking that they are a long list of restrictions, a denial of some of the fun things in life, a restriction on our pleasure-seeking, a dampener on passion. It is the inclusion of sloth on the list that gives the lie to this once and for all. Sloth is precisely a lack of passion, a settled laziness that for whatever reason fails to get worked up about poverty or cruelty or the threat to life on Earth through climate emergency. It is a dullness that fails to wonder at green rolling hills, brooding mountains, an act of sheer unexpected kindness, the birth of a baby. Botticelli, Mozart or Taylor Swift, take your pick from the last three or add more. Beauty is naturally subject to taste. It is the spirit that reacts to cruelty, injustice and pain by shrugging the shoulders and switching the channel. Christianity encourages a passion for life and all that is good and beautiful. That is why it is fundamentally opposed to sloth and puts it firmly on the list of habits to be shunned at all costs. According to the Christian account of life, We are beings created with a capacity for immense joy, passion, wonder, inquisitiveness and emotion. The world was created as an arena for all this enchantment. It was made so that we might regularly sit back in amazement at the fact that we get to live this life, this physical, spiritual life on this planet that is our home. A place of sheer beauty, the majesty of a lion, the speed of a hummingbird, the taste of pure water. We were intended to take delight in such things, to explore them and enjoy them. Yet most of all, we were intended to delight in their creator, the author of all this goodness, the one from whom they and we all come, the most beautiful and desirable one of all. In his great autobiographical reflection entitled Confessions, St. Augustine says of the human race, they choose to look for happiness not in you, but in what you have created. Now, Augustine himself was never quite sure whether taking pleasure in created things was a good idea or not. However, he did at least make this one point supremely well, that our ultimate joy was to be found in God. The joy we find in sunsets, friends and apple tart, are tasters, anticipations, to give us a taste for the very best, which is God himself. And conversely, when we lose our taste for God, we are likely sooner or later to lose our taste for other good things, or even to develop a taste for things that are bad for us, like hallucinogenic drugs or the thrill of theft or even cruelty, that try to imitate the ecstasy of a close connection with God. I remember my first taste of Guinness. The dark, swirling Irish drink had always had a fascination for me growing up. And I remember the first time I plucked up courage to look older than my age and bought a can in the local store to give it a try. It was foul. I hated it. It tasted sour, bitter and unpleasant. It didn't help that it was a hot summer's day and the beer was warm, but that didn't matter. It was the kind of experience that might have made me never touch the stuff again. It wasn't until later on, a few years older, after a bit of perseverance, that I began to appreciate the hidden flavours, the rich, full, wheaty taste. I learnt that just because it didn't taste like lemonade did not necessarily mean that it was bad. As I learnt to appreciate and enjoy it, Guinness soon became a favourite drink, something I would choose above all others. If it doesn't sound too irreverent... For many people, it is a bit like that with God. The idea of enjoying God is about as appealing as that sip of Guinness was for me aged 16. Yet in time, we can learn to appreciate things that have a deeper richness, a more profound taste. Guinness is a trivial example, but the same can be true of God. An acquired taste can take a while to come, but when it comes, it is the richest of all. The great past masters of the Christian way advise us that the surest way to combat sloth, the turning away from all that gives life, is to cultivate not just a zest for life, but an unlikely but deeply satisfying desire for the one who gave the gift of life in the first place. Gluttony's Unconscious Self-Image of Emptiness by Graham Tomlin A recent report highlighted the problem of obesity in our society. The percentage of British adults who are overweight has risen by 11% since 1993 to a whopping 64% of the population, with almost one in four British adults classified as obese. In the USA, it is even worse – with 36% of people classified as obese. And that has a knock-on effect on an already creaking NHS and healthcare systems elsewhere in the Western world. The bill for the taxpayer for obesity is rising to unsustainable levels. There are many causes of obesity, some of them physiological, some genetic, some economic, with poverty often linked to poor diet. Eating healthily costs. Yet Christianity has always seen a spiritual side to the problem, relating to our relationship with food. As part of this diagnosis, Christian moralists have typically called out the sin of gluttony. Strange though it may seem, in the earliest lists of the deadly sins, gluttony used to head the list as the worst of them all. Pope Gregory, in the 6th century, wrote... Unless we tame the enemy dwelling within us, namely our gluttonous appetite, we have not even stood up to engage in the spiritual combat. Later assessment of the rank of gluttony in the list of deadly sins has taken a kinder view. Thomas Aquinas was easier on gluttons because, for him, like lust, overeating mainly concerns the body rather than the soul and as we have to feed ourselves anyway, it is understandable and less serious than the other sins. When Dante's pilgrim arrives in hell, he finds the gluttons in the third circle of upper hell, not far from the top, tantalisingly within sight of the most succulent tree whose crop of tempting fruit ambrosial odours spread, but unable to climb to taste them. For him... Gluttons are certainly better than the prideful, the envious, wrathful, slothful or covetous. The only sin that seems less harmful to him is lust. Our image-conscious society tends to look down on people who are overweight, yet gluttony denies a simple rule that the fat are sinful and the thin are virtuous. When we think of gluttony, We maybe think of stuffing food into our mouths with no thought of tomorrow, overindulgence to a huge degree. Yet the sin of gluttony has always been seen as wider than that, including that fastidiousness about food that obsesses over what you can and cannot eat. C.S. Lewis writes about the kind of old lady who simply asks for a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast, adding, Because she wants it smaller and less costly than what has been set before her. She never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it is to others. Obsessive dieting can be just as much a sign of gluttony as overeating. Gluttony, then, is an inordinate obsession with food, drink or plain consumption. It is allowing food to take up a distorted place in our lives, just as lust is allowing sex to become an unhealthy obsession. We have a fascination with food. A TV advert lingers slowly over a picture of a chocolate sponge soaked in brandy with rich cream being poured over it, all with a soft, seductive voiceover describing the scene. A culinary striptease. The cookbook section of my local bookshop is far larger than the religious section. Who had ever heard of celebrity chefs 30 years ago? Now they're everywhere. The politics of food is also an area of tricky choices and legislation. Fine food and wine cost both time and money and poorer families tend to eat less healthily. Should they be banned from doing so for their own good? Should we replace chips and hamburgers with healthy salads in school canteens despite what the kids and their parents want? Where does the health of the nation override personal freedom to eat what you like? There is one story in the Bible that sheds some light on gluttony. It is the one where Jesus was tempted by the devil. During the temptations, Jesus deliberately goes without food. One of the enticements of the devil is to persuade Jesus to feed himself by the magic trick of turning the desert stones around him into bread. After all, that should be no problem for the Son of God. And it would, of course, demonstrate his true identity by a display of miraculous power. Jesus replies with some words from the Old Testament. It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The point is that when food becomes a god, it becomes dangerous. Food, like sex, has the ability to skew things and so it must be kept in its proper place. And the evidence of that is all around. The irony of our Western problem with obesity is that it occurs at a time when still half the world, three billion people, can't afford a healthy diet. One in ten people worldwide go to bed hungry at night, and nearly half the deaths of children across the world, under five, are related to undernutrition. In 2006, for the first time, the number of overweight people in the world, 1 billion, overtook the number of malnourished people, 800 million. First world gluttony is anomalous when related to third world poverty and hunger. Reverse psychology. Understand goodness, then sin, by Roger Brotherton. Over the last month or so, here at Seen and Unseen, we've been writing together about the seven deadly sins. Greed, lust, gluttony, pride, sloth, anger, envy. If you have seen the David Fincher film, you probably have the grisly murders that illustrate them etched into your retina. But if there is one theme that comes up in all our articles on the subject... It is the fact that sin as a concept no longer carries any weight in our culture. A word that once bore all the heft of heaven and hell is now the branding for a mildly indulgent discount day at the local health spa. One way of responding to the downgrading of sin as a meaningful and useful term is to argue that we need to return to sin. Sin needs a comeback to a conceptual rehabilitation. We need to repopulate the word with meaning to make it current and plausible again. Without a consistent shared language of moral failure, of falling short of ethical deficiency, it is difficult to imagine how a responsible human community can be viable. Alistair McIntyre, the virtue ethicist, suggested that the problem with our culture is that multiple ethical games are being played. We are not just disagreeing about what the rules should be, but moreover, what game it is that we're meant to be playing. Our culture is a babel of voices, proposing conflicting versions of what a good life looks like. Consequently, in moral dialogue, we often fail to understand one another. As McIntyre puts it, my move to Queen Bishop 3 is countered by your lob over the net. I am no etymologist. Very occasionally I dabble in a bit of New Testament Greek. But, to be honest... I don't know what I'm doing, and whenever I pronounce Greek root words, they sound like items from the IKEA stock list. And given my tendency to talk to myself when I write, it's almost inevitable that sooner or later the ever-attentive Alexa will accidentally order me a bedside lamp in response to what I thought was the Greek word for bowels. That said, my understanding of the etymology of the word sin is that it is an old English word originally derived from archery meaning missing the mark. miss by an inch, a foot, a mile, it's all called sin. Assuming archers in Old England preferred imperial units of measurement. Shoot the entire quiver in the opposite direction, that's sin too. Linguists may tell us this is an apocryphal origin myth, but it doesn't matter. Whether in archery or ethics, the point remains the same. Sin is a relative term. It is relative to whatever it is we wanted to do, or aspired to become, but missed. Could it be, then, that the root of our current cultural enemy is not so much that sin as a concept has been emptied of meaning, though it has, but that we no longer have any consensual agreement on what a good person should look like? We have no shortage of imagination when it comes to inventing new contents for the empty container of sin. But our thinking about goodness is woefully uninspired. Without a target to aim at, sin becomes vacuous. To illustrate this point, I'd like to tell you about two of the most eminent psychologists of the last hundred years. Let's start with a history lesson. O. Hobart mower 1907-1982, to is perhaps one of the most eminent, innovative, and bemusing contributors to the short history of academic psychology. At the pinnacle of his career in 1953, he was elected president of the American Psychological Association, the APA, the largest and most esteemed society of psychologists in the world. But as a lifelong sufferer of recurrent depression, the announcement sent him into a deep psychological crisis that left him incapacitated for nearly four months. In 1959, he addressed the APA convention in Cincinnati with one of the most unusual and controversial papers of the decade, Constructive Aspects of the Concept of Sin in Psychotherapy, in which he argued that the euphemisms for sin preferred by psychologists, wrongdoing, immorality, irresponsibility, etc., were not sufficiently powerful to convey the distress of a guilty conscience. He had an ambivalent off-again-on-again relationship with institutional religion, but was nevertheless impressed with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should do our good deeds in secret. This principle, you are your secrets, became central to his development of integrity therapy, a group approach to psychological distress through confession. In the 1970s, the tide of cultural opinion turned against Moa, his integrity groups were accused of brainwashing their participants, and their popularity waned. Some say he subsequently retracted his views on sin. His episodes of depression continued to dog him, and in 1982, at the age of 75, he died of suicide, having long advocated this as a reasonable course of action in certain circumstances. This thumbnail sketch hardly does justice to the sensitive suffering of genius O Hobart Murr. There is no space to recount the academic innovations that make him still one of the most cited psychologists in history. He coined the term pathogenic secret, the idea that sin, by which he meant the things that secretly bother our consciences, make us sick. I think he was probably right about that. Take for an example a freely available open access list of what might be considered sin. It includes sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, intoxication, orgies and things like that. It is not a particularly systematic or comprehensive list. It just happens to be the list of examples that Paul the Apostle came up with in a first-century letter to residents of what is now central Turkey. They hardly make pleasant reading, but they make a great episode of succession. Paul called these works of the flesh. Works because they are things we do, situations we manufacture. Flesh not in opposition to physical pleasure, But because these kinds of responses, strife, envy, rage, etc., seem to be patterned by bodily reactions, part of our conditioning written into our muscle. The fact that Paul refers to them in plural, works of the flesh, is more significant than it initially appears. For him, the unethical life is an incoherent ragbag of reactions, a series of plays and tactics designed to gain immediate personal gratification. As long as we come out on top, or at least think we have, they have done their job. But if we live by them, if we hand ourselves over to the universe of their self-centred, cynical logic, our identity fragments, our sense of coherence shatters. We can no longer imagine who we would be if our greed, pride, lust, or whatever was taken away from us. Our appetites become our identity. This is why I think that the instincts that led Moa to develop a therapy emphasising integrity was right. Provided, of course, that we embrace the full definition of integrity rather than simply taking it as a synonym for honesty. The integrity to which Moa's groups aspired was not just the truthfulness that comes from the disclosure of secrets, but the inner harmony that comes from the restoration of wholeness. What looked superficially like an unhealthy preoccupation with sin was, in fact, Moa's pursuit of the unified state of self that accompanies goodness. A sentiment that leads us to psychologist number two. Fast forward four and a half decades from Moa's election as APA president. It is 1998 another newly minted APA president, Martin Sagelman, arguably the most famous clinical psychologist in the world, is making his inaugural address. Seligman is unique among world-famous psychologists in many ways, not least of which being his claim that he was called to be a clinical psychologist. He later told a conference at Lambeth Palace that as a young research scientist, During his deliberations on whether to follow the path into clinical practice, he woke one night from a dream of visiting the Guggenheim Museum in New York. As he admired the architecture of the iconic building, God himself, a giant bearded old man, lifted the roof and boomed, I want you to be a clinical psychologist. Of course, as a secular Jewish academic, Seligman doesn't believe in God, but this doesn't deter him from openly admitting that his vocation in clinical psychology was not wholly chosen, but issued from the unspoken depths of his being. This deep-seated sense of vocation may go some way to explaining why his 1998 inaugural address has gone down as a turning point in the history of psychology. His central assertion was that up until then, psychology had been obsessed with the negative, what's wrong with us, and that it was time to rebalance the discipline with a refocus on human flourishing, which at the time he formulated as the pleasant life, the engaged life, the meaningful life. This is viewed by some as the birth of positive psychology, which according to Seligman, was a corrective to the rotten-to-the-core view of human beings that had dominated the discipline since Freud. It's difficult to imagine a proposal more diametrically opposed to that of Moa. While Moa argued for a renewed awareness of sin, Seligman asserted to the contrary that it was the vast ignorance of goodness that bedeviled contemporary psychology. We already had a rich, ever-expanding science of what was wrong with people, what we needed, was an equally detailed, every bit as expansive science of what was right with us. The explosive growth of positive psychology over the last few decades has been a response to that call, to develop a full-blown science of goodness. In the years that followed, Seligman revised his idea of the good life multiple times, perhaps his most ambitious proposal, being the concept of prospective psychology. The idea that we as a species are best defined not by our past, but by our future. He held this future orientation to be so characteristic of human nature that we could name the species after it, Homo prospectus. We are not defined by what we have been, but by what we are yet to be. It is an insight he shares with many of the thoughtful people who have pondered ethics over the years. Take for example a freely available open access list of what might be considered virtue. It includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is not a particularly systematic or comprehensive list. It just happens to be the list of examples that Paul the Apostle came up with in a first-century letter to residents of what is now central Turkey. I often feel better about life just reading it. Paul called these beautiful qualities fruit of the Spirit. It is significant that in the original New Testament Greek, the word for fruit is singular. He doesn't write fruits, but fruit of the Spirit. He points toward some kind of unity, harmony, consistency in these qualities. Moa, no doubt, would have called it integrity. Goodness is much more than the avoidance of naughtiness. It is the restoration of wholeness to our shattered and divided selves. Sin is much more than the cheeky indulgences we succumb to at the end of a bruising day at work. It is the misdirection and derailment of all we could become. This is where the tale of two psychologists terminates. Contrary to what the marketing executives may have conspired to tell you, sin is not your friend. It is the enemy of your genuine divine magnificence. That's what makes deadly sin so deadly. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get, seen and unseen aloud. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.